Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. I'm lost. Oh, no, I guess he's not with me as usual. I'm lost in the woods. He's, he's, I, I, I can't even hear him. I wonder I if the call. I man in Surge. <laughs> the bug man's after my Surge. <laughs> I'm sipping on my Surge, and the bug man's after me. <laughs> <laughs> the cr- I'm down my Surge. The, the real critical introduction of Surge. Do they even make Surge anymore? Is Surge one of the ones uh, that got discontinued? I believe Surge disappeared for a while. Yeah. And I think Surge is back. Surge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I searched Surge Soda, and the first result is Surge Soda is back. It, wow, that's true. It, that is. That's that's the log line for their we- the official website. Yeah. Did you click on it? No, I didn't. If you click on it, the thing that the website says is surge up, be legend. <laughs> God, I wish we'd been hired for the surge campaign. <laughs> Let's see. Surge up. I'm clicking on it. Uh, 16 flu announces a surge. That's all they have. They only have surge tall boys. Uh-huh. Uh, it's also at the Burger King Coca-Cola freestyle machine. Oh. Okay. I'm looking online. Let's see here. Walmart. It's out of stock everywhere. Uh. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's out of stock everywhere. Oh, Near dear. Me, at least. That's not It's good. telling me I could call my local Burger King to see if they have it. Hold on. Give me a second. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. I'm back. They don't have it. Ah, uh, hell. Uh, well. I know. Serge, you uh, were with us for not too long. Just like the girl who loved Tom Gordon. That's right. I'm out of Serge. <laughs> uh today we're talking about 1999's the girl who loved tom gordon and her surge i'm googling surge tall boys on uh ebay Mm, great (laughs) surge soda uh for a six pack it's fifty dollars jesus this is so this is just mountain dew it's just mountain dew no no it isn't no, 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 Michael Lutz is oh. not. Uh-huh. No, 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 no. <laughs> what if I did that all the time? Like every time he said something, <laughs> I didn't agree with him. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> the, the new catchphrase for yeah. our show. Yeah, it's, like it's like a real like uh, people. It like immediately splits the fan base where they're like, I don't just I just don't know about the new no, 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 no thing. <laughs> Anytime I just about anything where it's like you're like I don't like fantasy I go no 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 Michael people on the Reddit like flooding it with no 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 memes (laughs) give us your best no 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 memes that's funny tweet them at us put them on the Discord uh 
but no, it's not. It's not. It is like a, a sharper Mountain Dew. I think it had way more caffeine in it. Like way <laughs> more caffeine. I'm certain I would be like a full uh, foot taller if I had not had gallons and gallons of surge in like 1998. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, there's a surge bucket hat on eBay. Oh, boy. You can get a, an original Sixer from the late 90s, unopened, $750. Oh, my gosh. Why are we not investing in Surge? That's got, that's <laughs> got to be, in terms of uh, year over year, that's got to be like better than gold, right? Yeah. Yeah, Surge speculation is the wave of the future. Uh, for nearly $200, you can buy a Coca-Cola Surge promotional screaming Surge radio. I believe, yeah, it's like a little party radio. Uh huh. <laughs> cool. Anyway, she, uh, you know, who else had a radio? Uh, the girl who, who loved, loved Tom, Tom Gordon. Gordon. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Wait, hold on. I got one more thing for you. Okay. Super rare surge Coca Cola soda cardboard display. Only one on eBay. Holy Grail! Exclamation point. It is a standy. Limited time only. It's it's got the Surge logo on it. It says three for five dollars. It's a pretty good deal for Surge. Mm-hmm. It says almost gone. Get it while it lasts. Wow, that's poignant. It is four thousand dollars. Jeez, I think I could I could mix up my own bucket of Surge for that amount. <laughs> we'll reverse engineer and perfect our homemade Surge recipe. That's right. <laughs> That's where all the Patreon money goes. I've been yeah. trying to Frankenstein up a surge recipe for the past five years. I'm still working, everybody. Patreon.com slash range touch. <laughs> I'll post it when I'm done. When I figure it out, I'll post yeah. it on there for you. It would have been really helpful when she was lost in the woods and she got thirsty if she had known how to make her own surge. That's right. Because surge famously, uh, if you if you get the surge sugar and caffeine in there, it kills all the bacteria in the water. Yeah, <laughs> for when you're drinking that slurpy swamp water. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what's this book about? Oh <laughs> uh, well, that's your job this time. Do I need to summarize it before we talk about that? Yeah, I'll summarize it. How about that? Yeah, quickest time to summary ever. Yeah, I believe so. Just because it's probably better just get that off the yeah. off the docket. Mm-hmm. The girl who left Tom Gordon comes out in uh, what ninety nine? Is yep. it ninety nine? Mm-hmm. It's got to be a ninety nine. It's got to be a ninety nine. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Let's see here. Uh, f- five sentence summary is when we summarize something over five sentences. Uh, it's off the dome. It's not from anything. I'm not reading from Wikipedia. As someone once uh, accused us of. <laughs> years ago and we continue to bring up because it's funny mm-hmm. <laughs> five cents summary of the girl who loved tom gordon uh a girl with the most divorced parents loves baseball on a hike with her very divorced mother she lags behind to go pee in the woods period she gets lost Period. In a pseudo psychedelic open parentheses, kind of like Gerald's game, close parentheses, experience, comma, the girl wanders across the Maine and New Hampshire landscape for many different days while 
also fantasizing that she is being communicated to by the Red Sox relief pitcher, closer pitcher, closing pitcher. I think he's a closer. Yeah. I don't know. Baseball. Whatever. Tom Gordon. She is also stalked by some sort of creature that haunts the woods. Open parentheses, maybe. Close parentheses. And eventually she wanders out after many different hatchet style (laughs) experiences. Period. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the book. It's not complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Did you you ever read this book before? Yes. Yes. I read it, you know, during the the heyday of my Stephen King fandom as a mm-hmm. youngin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remembered in broad strokes what it was about, um, and kind of the kind of the things that are interesting about it, which are like what, what you called like this psychedelic, pseudo psychedelic, like really the psychological aspects of it, like what this thing is doing compared to something like. Gary Paulson's hatchet, which is another mm-hmm. like young person stranded in the wilderness tries to survive story. Um, I remembered kind of that stuff, uh, but otherwise it didn't make a very strong impression on me because I had already read Gary Paulson's hatchet. And also like this is this is in, in addition to like begging for comparison. This is also basically a young adult novel as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, if not for um, all the, like, getting sliced apart murder stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which which there's more of that than you would imagine, perhaps. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I read this, yeah, back in whenever it came out, I guess, or shortly after it came out, and uh, it didn't really stick with me. The ending stuck with me, because spoilers, there's a bear. And at the time, <laughs> I was like, ah, uh, oh, it's a bear, which maybe still some some people have that experience. Oh, it's a bear. But now reading it, I think eh, maybe it wasn't a bear, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It could have been in anything down there. But uh, but we'll talk about that when we get toward the end. Where this book come from? Uh, it's it's interesting. So this was a surprise book. Uh, we like talked to you. Yeah. To me. Uh, to my family, to everyone. Everyone was like, wait a minute. People write books about baseball? Uh, no. So we talked back, I think, during the Bag of Bones episode that just at that point when that book came out, right, Bag of Bones was like the the spear tip on a new weird contract that King had taken out with uh, Scribner. Uh, and that was for three books. And I think it was one novel and maybe one novella collection and maybe one short story collection or possibly two novels and one novella or short story collection. This is a little muddy because um, mm-hmm. I, one of the things that's in the pipeline here is Hearts in Atlantis. And I think based on what I've read, I think that that was maybe pitched as a novella collection before it became what it is. But we'll talk about that more later. Hmm. The point is, it explicitly did not include the girl who loved Tom Gordon. This was uh, announced as a uh, uh, just like sudden thing that he like an idea that he came up with in late 1998 uh, and wanted to get to uh, publish basically as quick as possible for reasons that 
weirdly enough, I haven't been able to get any interviews with King on where he like explains this. It's sort of like uh, just industry industry write ups. Right. So Stephen King has delivered an unexpected novel to Scribner that the publisher hopes to rush out between April 5th and April 12th with a projected 1.25 million copy first printing. The novel, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, is the story of a girl lost in the Northeast Woods. Gordon is a relief pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, and through her Walkman, the lost girl listens to the Red Sox games, creating in her mind an imaginary friendship with Gordon as she endures the terror of the woods. Scribner publisher Susan Moldau told uh, Publishers Weekly that the company is publishing the novel through a contract separate from the three book deal that included bag of bones although she noted that the financial arrangements were quote on a scale with that contract unquote which stipulated a relatively low advance but includes a profit sharing arrangement uh hmm. yeah but apparently king got this idea while watching a, a red Sox game uh and then he I think it maybe specifically came from seeing Tom Gordon do his thing. And then he asked Tom Gordon for permission to make him a character in this story. Huh? Yeah. Oh, also when it was published, uh, it was April 6th, which was the opening day for major league baseball for 1999. Jesus. Yep. They, they even, they, they put advertisements for this book on the scoreboard at Fenway park. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Inspiration came while King was attending a Red Sox game at Fenway Park last July, watching relief pitcher Tom Gordon save one of the 44 games that he did last season for his team. It's shorter than the usual King book, 224 pages. And that is interesting, right? Like that is those are questions that I have, like in any other kind of era of King or I guess the prior eras of King. This would have come out with like three other novellas stapled onto it. But this was important enough for him that I think he wanted it to get out into the world on its own. Yeah. Has he ever talked about that? I I was searching like Stephen King, a girl who loved Tom Gordon, like interviews, and I wasn't really finding anything on that theme. Hmm. Fascinating, Steve. Mm hmm. What are you about? I don't know. Yeah, I this is like such a weird just random runner. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I feel like what's weird is that Stephen King could be doing this constantly with the way that the man writes. Right. So yeah. surprising you with like a little like 200 pager, just drop it out there in the middle of the season or whatever. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean. If I had to guess what is the push behind this one, I think it is because something we have not really remarked upon thus far. This is another spirituality novel. It's another God novel. Um, it feels a bit more pointed about that than something like, well, unlike something like Desperation, um, mm -hmm. is a bit more mass market appealing. <laughs> yeah. I, it feels like, uh, you know, because we talk all the time about how King is maybe unique in some ways because he is someone who is cranking out just a huge amount of text. Just like, you know, he's in the 1% of like actual human writers cranking out words. It's just immense, especially for his like, you know, uh, profile level right mm -hmm. and even other people like grisham right like i've read a little bit of john grisham i don't get the sense that he is like i don't get a sense that basically any of those other people i've read you know a bunch of clancy for example right especially in the 90s around the same time period 
those people didn't really they don't really evolve mm-hmm. you know what i mean like i don't i don't get a sense that tom because Cl- again you know i read a bunch of tom clancy i read a bunch of uh uh michael crichton too right these mm-hmm. kind of airport thrillers right and early michael crichton and late michael crichton kind of the same you know like uh stylistically a little bit different you know the andromeda strains quite different from some of the later books right or the what did i read uh the terminal man is that the name of the book uh maybe that sounds like <laughs> i read it, i read it like last year or the year before yeah. that right and that book is like wild it's like you know really interesting and weird but in terms of like the focus the fixation the style stylization stuff the other major blockbuster writers of that era kind of all feel like they produce the same stuff over and over again in terms of stylistic, in terms of their beliefs about the world, right? Like, I don't know, just King feels really different in that regard because he kind of like, he'll massage the same wound over and over and over and over again. And we get to see these like weird developments. And maybe also that I, it's because I've spent like multiple years doing this with King now. So I'm hypersensitive to the transformations. <laughs> You know what I mean? So maybe that's it. Maybe I'm just like, this is just like selection bias going on here. But that, that it seems notable to me that he's like, all right, I got to go in for like novel seven about spirituality, right? I got mm-hmm. to take another swing at this one because I've got some different uh, uh, thoughts on it. And Bag of Bones really does feel like, uh, you know, looking back at it from here, really feels like a sea change. Mm-hmm. I don't think Stephen King would have written this in like 19... 19- so Stephen King definitely wouldn't have written this in 1985. Yeah. You know, like it's just it, the gulf between the perspective here, the kind of literary ambition, the way he's thinking about this, his fixation with trying to write like a 10 year old for some reason mm-hmm. uh, and trying to write that 10 year old is like phenomenologically real as opposed to like a sketch of a child that he would do and say it, you know, mm-hmm. those aren't real kids. They are these like, parodies of a parody of a parody of what he imagines of his childhood from the 50s mm-hmm. it's, it's just so different than what came before i don't know if it's good <laughs> like i really don't know if i think this book is a good book uh but it certainly is interesting as another as a swing at whatever the hell he's trying to do here yeah i mean i think i agree in in like broad strokes i also think like I think this book is perfectly fine. I think it's nice to get something from King that is so uh, suspicious. Short. Yeah, short and specific <laughs> in its vision and its ambition and what it appears to want to do. Uh, yeah. And then it does that thing, right? Yeah. yeah you're, <laughs> yes, a million percent. It's like, I want to have a girl get lost in the woods and like think about the world. And the ultimate evil, divorce. Okay. <laughs> We have accomplished this goal. The end. Right. <laughs> right. There's an efficiency to this. Uh, yeah. It's the first book we've read in uh, in a year where I haven't had the thought and expressed the thought. This could be shorter. It should be 10% shorter. Mm-hmm. It is It is the perfect length. I don't think it overstays its welcome at all. It doesn't really repeat too much. The, each event. It would be very easy for this to be like. And here we go through another event that's kind of the same again. But no, each one is distinct mm-hmm. and moves the plot along. Mm-hmm. A plus. Great work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. And that's basically it. I mean, I don't know. And that that's great the, app. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the sort of drawback, right? Is that there isn't much to discuss. I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll talk more, but just like in terms of plot, quite literally, a girl gets lost in the woods and wanders around the woods and, you know, unfortunate things happen, right? She falls over. She gets hurt. She slides down a hill. She drinks some bad water and gets really sick at one point. Uh, Oh, it's like absolute. You're just reading about the torture of a child. Yeah. You know, and that's I think, you know, it's part of the uh, the the Michael Lutz reading strategy, right? Like (laughs) Stephen King seems to be thinking about this is like a pretty direct thinking about right of like what is up with the author that tortures its characters. Mm-hmm. And what kind of God would do that? Yes. <laughs> and there's like some different kinds of gods that might want to do that. And I I mean, it's pretty clear to me that this is meta reflective in that way. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. I don't know to what end, <laughs> but but, you know, sometimes when you say that, you know, I go, no, 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 Michael. Uh, you know, but this one, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, uh, the God of the lost need needs to watch this kid to have some troubles. Yeah. And that's the thing that really jumped out to me on this reread was uh, not just like sort of the the clearly like ethical meta reflection that King has been doing since at some point in the 90s. Right. I think it's like mm-hmm. since at least uh, insomnia or needful things, there has been some sort of question lingering at the back of King's work, which is who am I? writing these stories about these terrible things happening to fictional people. And who is my audience in that Mm -hmm. they like get some sort of like pleasure or validation from this? Like what is up with this? Um, So we've got that. And then the other thing that King works here that is also related to kind of like his larger fictional project that I think is just absolutely fascinating uh, is the way that so if you read this book and kind of it's your it's your first Stephen King novel, you'll get a little bit of this, I think. Right. I think it's it's strong enough that you'll um, get the whiff of it. But if mm-hmm. you've done what we've done and read all of Stephen King up to this point, or if you're particularly familiar with uh, the way that his fantasy has been developing through like the talisman and the Dark Tower stuff. Uh, and it, you mentioned Gerald's game, too. Right. Uh the sort of like numinous elements of that novel. If you're familiar with that, then this novel also takes on some larger complexities because you see him revisiting some of those ideas in a way that feels to put this shortly, right? There's a way in which this novel is kind of like a low, you could read it as like a low key sequel to the talisman, because as you said, there's Mm -hmm. this, there's this thing that is stalking Trisha, who is the main character's, uh, main character's name. There's this thing stalking Trisha through the woods, and it is a bear. And also, it might not just be a bear, right? The 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 thing that is really cool about this uh, book is that as Trisha wanders through the woods and grows uh, steadily more dehydrated and hungry, and um, she starts hallucinating, obviously, we're to take this as kind of psychological, but then in, in the way that King often does, like there, there's some sort of truth or like we start to feel like there's some sort of truth to the fantasy. And so uh, you mentioned already the God of the lost, right? She starts thinking she gets this like n- name of a thing that might just be purely like I'm dying in the woods and my brain is making things up. And it also might be like 
this is this is the woods. This is the woods between Maine and New Hampshire. And if you move three degrees through the multiverse, there is something very close and parallel happening here that has like deeper cosmological stakes than just a little girl lost in the woods or to put it differently, like even a little girl being lost in the woods can have kind of these epic uh, uh, resonances to it um, that are like more fantastical. And also for King here, like this becomes like more sort of the conduit for his spirituality, which we'll I, at some point talk about. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's uh, it's interesting that you would. That That is a more charitable read than I think what the book is doing. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you're really king of that up. Yeah. Cause I don't know if I think that's true. Is that just, you just flatly not true or do you have like a specific like, thing I, that you're I thinking think of? It, I think it's meant to be closer to a, uh, to a Gerald's game, which is like the, what is scary about it is that the, her situation in the woods is like weakening the that what is the what is the uh what do you call it the Shirley Jackson about looking at reality thing huh that Shirley Jackson I'm not sure you know it's like uh when you look at unvarnished reality blah 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 you get scared uh unvarnished reality <laughs> you know what I'm talking about I don't think so. Maybe it's not her. I mean, there is like the closest I can think of is the opening of Hill House, which is no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Yeah, you got it. There we go. And so I so I think it's kind of like that, right? That and ultimately, like all of the like numinous, you know, like fantastical horror stuff that's in Gerald's game is kind of revealed to be like nothing. Right. Uh huh. Uh, because there was a guy there the whole time. <laughs> the space cowboy was there the whole time, right? And I, I think, unfortunately, that that the the girl who loved Tom Gordon is that mm. is like all of the the fantastical horror elements that are super scary and cool. They are disavowed by the plot because it was just because you know uh, being removed from culture, being removed from reality. Uh, being forced into this like survival scenario makes her, you know, essentially hallucinate all these things. Like I, I, I do think it, it opens the door to, for a more fun book, which is the one that you just talked about, <laughs> and the one I want to believe in. I don't think that is the the book's final statement about any of this stuff, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. But I do think I think it's just like a second run Gerald's game format wise with the. Uh, lessons learned of Bag of Bones. Mm-hmm. Because like he, you know, in Bag of Bones, he's he is haunted by the, I mean, literally a ghost, right? But also the actions of his dead wife who, you know, was doing this other thing and it ultimately ends up being this kind of guiding presence for him, right? Right. And that's what Tom Gordon is here, right? right. It's like mm-hmm. good guiding presence against the evil guiding presence of uh the god of of the lost or whatever and ultimately that is dispelled by the return to culture or whatever the return to civilization blah 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 um and you know what sometimes even your divorced parents can come back together maybe oh my god yeah it's the most spielbergian king has ever been oh yeah oh yeah you gotta heal your family bro Mm mm-hmm 
if you if you don't heal your family, what did you? But that's all to say, right? Like I, I want to plant the flag for you. the book you pitched is the better book. <laughs> I don't think that is actually this book. I think it. I think it is much more pedestrian than that, and and non fantastical. I do think. It, yeah, I, I do agree though that uh, it, this is a good way. If you're if you like the vibes of of the talisman, this is a pretty quick afternoon read of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, and there's no uh, there's no like happy creatures that get murdered. Well, no, there's some uh, baby deer. That's true, that but get- they don't speak and they don't say. Gosh darn it, or whatever that whatever Wolf said. Whatever his catchphrase. <laughs> They're was. not like, oh no, why are you abusing me? I'm just a baby deer. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't. They just get they just get murdered mm-hmm. um, off screen, <laughs> which is okay. That's totally fine. Um, the uh, yeah, but but as you you know, you have this here in the Spielbergian high concept is the language you have in the notes, and I think that's like one billion percent correct here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about all the, uh, before we talk about plotty, plotty, plot, what do you think about all the, the different God talk that's in here? Well, I, I think the God talk is actually one of the reasons why I, uh, push it toward what you called the more interesting novel, because I think mm-hmm. those, I think we are to take the fantastical elements as in some way, like a, like lesser reflection of the ultimate supernatural truth, which is that God has guided Trisha through the woods, right? That her faith has been rewarded uh, because this is the the, uh, Tom Gordon, as we learn in the novel, one of his kind of trademarks, other than being uh, a very good relief pitcher or whatever the hell he is again, whatever baseball, Um, I'm going to look it up. I, I, I read it. I'll look up Tom Gordon. I know. I like read it 10 minutes ago and I, it left my mind immediately. Uh, He's right handed. <laughs> great. I don't think we've said that yet. <laughs> In 1998, he won the Rolaids Relief Man of the Year Award. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, one of his trademarks, we learn, is that at the end of a game, he uh, points to the sky, which is his way of like acknowledging God. Um, yeah. And I suspect that this is part of what, uh, you know, inspires King because the the God concept ends up uh, being so important here Uh, or like, you know, yeah, it does. I mean, Trisha has a conversion sequence, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, the the kind of vision of God that we get is one who uh, is kind of removed, who trials you, who tests you. Uh, but you just ultimately have to have faith, but that faith must be coupled with a kind of gumption or right. Or with, mm-hmm. with like a desire for forward momentum to continue to do work so that God might work through you. And through that way, you might work your own salvation with the aid of God, mm-hmm. uh, which is the most Protestant God imaginable. Yes. Right, right, right. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, you guys down there, you heard about these works? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, that's, that's kind of like the deal here. Right. And that's why I think, Mm -hmm. um, the, the fantasy elements I think are intended to provide a little bit of color, uh, Mm -hmm. but they're also there to like, get us to this spiritual point, which is through determination and faith. This little girl survived in the woods several days longer, probably than she would have if she did not have kind of the determination bestowed by faith. 
All right, so let me let me give you the the rundown here on the the Tom Gordon, what the deal is with Tom Gordon. Okay, so it, she talks about it extensively in the book, and like it, it's talked about enough that I understood conceptually what was happening, but not like rules of the game wise. So the thing with Tom Gordon is he's good at he, he's a closing, so he's a relief pitcher and he's a closer, so he he pitches at the end of a game, and he leads the season or led like historically led the season in 98, I guess. Um, or no, I'm sorry, not, not led the league, uh, but set the, the Red Sox's record, mm-hmm. uh, for saves. Saves are you show up at the end of the game and you, uh, and your team is only ahead by a small amount and you prevent the other team from beating you. That's the, or, or, or on the opposite, you, you get more, I mean, no, I guess like uh, pitching is entirely defensive, right? So like you prevent the other team from beating you. (laughs) That that I was correct the first time, right? And so that is the whole deal. So he is literally mechanistically for the Red Sox a savior, right? Mm -hmm. To to keep them from being and, you know, giving it up for God every time, right? And that's kind of contrasted with her her dads because, you know, I said her parents are the most divorced people in human history. And mm-hmm. we can st- when we talk about the plotty plotty plot parts that I'm sure that will come up. But uh, uh, yeah, the the god of gumption, as you just said, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> of, yeah, that, kind of represented by Tom Gordon, is pitched against her dad's god, right? Which is like the shittiest Stephen King god of like 1981. The right? the sub audible, the sub That there's just some like horse shit vibrating around out here. Like, it, it can't be more dismissed textually than, right. than he does here, right? Um, which is just like, oh, yeah, there's like a good presence, you know, that kind of makes stuff run and it might not have morality or whatever, right? But it it generally keeps the the wheels on the track. It's it's the reality. turtle. It, yes. Right. Which, it's- which does give a kind of like um, a difference between what is already been established as and is really going to accelerate over the next like year of podcasts that we do of the white versus the turtle. Right. <laughs> Cause they're not the same thing. Right. Right. The turtle is like good. And the turtle is a creative force. And also when bill shows up in his like dream vision and meets the turtle, he's like, please turtle help us it, by the way, for people yeah. who have not looked li- <laughs> for people who are tuning in only for the girl who loved Tom Gordon episode. This is in the novel. It toward yeah. the end of the novel. It. Right, right. He he like Bill like in his dream vision meets the turtle, which is this vast turtle in space that created everything, and he's like, Please help us, and the turtle's like, I don't know how to do that, buddy. I just coughed up the universe. Yeah, and also I'm dead. <laughs> well, he's dead later. He's dying then. Yeah. But he you know what I mean? It's yeah. like that that's established very clearly for us that like the uh, the creature that kind of just gets stuff going insufficient to defeat evil, right? Right. And that's like awesome nihilist Stephen King. Right? <laughs> like he believes in nothing. Uh, you know, he needs his money. Lebowski, all that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. He's gunning for Donnie. <laughs> These various things. Um, and, and so, you know, I think you're right that there's a little bit of this um, pitching two different pitching, two different form, forms of like belief in a very kind of Christian inflected belief here. Right. And the one is the, post-conversion king post post sobriety which mm-hmm. has as we have established in there some kind of conversion narrative that he's a little cagey still at least at this point in the late 90s about talking about um something in there and that's that is 
uh, within this novel, whether it's his own purposeful dramatization of that or whatever, but it, it's certainly put in here that there's a kind of older model of Stephen King religiosity as presented in the books. You know, I don't know if it's his own personal religiosity, but the way that God was thought of in these books and presented as this kind of like uh, divine watchmaker kind of ideal versus an act of God that needs you to like point at the sky and start pitching good. Mm-hmm. You know, new new God. If uh, like new metal, <laughs> <laughs> it was the late nineties, and all sorts of exciting 90s. things were happening. <laughs> That's right. Uh, if you love this uh, 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 God talk, you should probably, and you don't uh, already support us on Patreon, you can head on over to Range Touch uh, Patreon. It's patreon.com slash range touch. That's how you say the URL. Uh, yep. You can give us $5 a month and you'll get access to all of our bonus episodes from the past, which are by majority just us talking about Stephen King films. And this month, uh, I don't think we have even announced it at the time of this recording. We are doing the Desperation TV movie. Uh, with specifically this for for this reason to contrast uh, that earlier version of Stephen King's God from 1996 or whatever uh, with this, except also that TV movie was from 2006. So it's a little bit later. And having already watched it, I can say we'll talk about it a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about God a little bit more and like how the miniseries actually even changes what the uh, the book was doing with God, which is also still somehow in conversation with this, because ultimately one of the things that's coming through is that King is very concerned with the ways that children think about God or the way that children relate to God and or the ways that God might use children to accomplish his ends. Yeah, what's going on with that stuff? Yeah, I don't know. Does he have grandkids at this point? <sighs> like, is that, you know, because that you could imagine that being part of the equation here. Right. right. Let's see. But I don't think so. I don't I don't believe that Naomi has children, does she? Yeah, because um, we would have had. Let's see, did he have, I don't know if we've got. Yeah, I don't think Naomi has kids and I'm not sure if Joe has kids. I think he does now. Yeah. I believe. Oh, yeah. Uh, This is our uh, other show that we do. Does Stephen King have grandkids? We spent two and a half hours just researching. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Joe definitely has kids, uh, but I don't know. I mean, so he he's he married for the first time in 1999. So I don't know if he would have had kids before then or after then. But like he's we're, we're we're entering Stephen King does probably have grandkids territory at least. Yeah, somewhere around this thing. You know what's really funny? Uh, who's the third child? Uh, Owen. Yeah, Owen. Uh, the the uh, <laughs> the third child. Oh, if he listens, he's so upset right now. He is the third child numerically. Yeah. That's true. I, yes. Like this is not fair to Owen whatsoever. So I'm, what I'm about to say is like deeply silly. But like you know how you just have these like just passive thoughts in your head, like beliefs you have, you've never reflected on. And when you do reflect on, you think, why did I think that? Here's one I have. Okay. And only recently did I think about it and be like, why would I ever believe this? But just passively for the past many years, I've just been like, yeah, Owen lives at his parents' house and is like 18. Uh Uh-huh. Like in my mind, he's like the child- 
the little kid of the Stephen King family. He's who, still like, sleeping in home. a bunk bed. Yes. And he's like in his childhood bedroom. You know, he's got Conan on the wall or whatever. Right. Like in my like imagination of Stephen King in the year, you know, whatever, like a couple years, like 2022, I was like. Joe Hill's off and he's like living his own life and he's got his own house and he's doing his own stuff. And, you know, Naomi's like off doing her own thing. And Owen lives at home with his parents in his childhood bedroom, like like stepbrothers. But, yeah. he's, you know, but he is they're old, you know, they're in their 60s and 70s and he's still like 19 or whatever. He just hasn't gone. And I don't know why I think that, you know, I don't know why that lodged itself and said, maybe it's because they co-wrote that book together. And it seems like Owen is like, always has a pretty good relationship with his parents, you know, Mm -hmm. but just in my mind, he just, he just like, you know, like failure to launch style. He just never, (laughs) he never got out of his house. And that's wrong. Like that's, that's clearly not true. Right. And like any reflection on it, I was like, that's wrong. Why did I think that? But I did think that for a long time. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, it's 1999. Owen King is, uh, by my count here, 22 years old. And he <laughs> yeah. comes, like, running down the stairs in short pants and a backward baseball cap. What are we doing yeah. today, Dad? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But I'm thinking about that for, like, like while we've been doing the show. <laughs> and he's an adult, like a, like a really adult man. Like, we're probably, he's older than I am. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I, in my mind, yeah, he's backwards baseball cap. He's like, hey, dad, can we go have a catch? You know, in Steve King's 70. <laughs> And like in my mental model, they're they're the appropriate like Stephen King's the appropriate age, but Owen is eternally, you know, whatever, like a kid. <laughs> I don't know why I think that. I mean, I don't think that now because I thought about it for more than two seconds, but uh, when I wasn't considering it, yeah, I just I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why I think that. He's an he's an adult. Yeah, Owen, if you listen, I know you're an adult. <laughs> I just want to confirm. You want to talk about plotty plotty plot? Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, so Trisha, extremely divorced parents, uh, but crucially, yeah. uh, not divorced because it seems like someone cheated on someone. It was truly like a personality conflict just bubbled over. Uh, y- yeah, her dad sucks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like like that fundamentally is the friction here. Yeah. Uh, and she is going on a hike. Well, they've moved, right? They used to live like north of Boston. Um, they lived on like the North Shore. After the divorce, uh, they have moved up to Maine with their mother to take like the, um, I think they have a vacation home, which is in the TR, by the way, from Bag of Bones. Uh, Hmm. and they are then going on like a weekend hike because one of the things that we learn is that since the divorce, mom has become really emphatic about uh, spending time together and making them go out and do things. And her Mm -hmm. older brother is a huge brat who loves to play uh, adventure games on the computer machine. He loves to play mist and uh, sanitarium is one that gets a shout out here. Uh, And he is also like angry over the divorce because he is no longer like he was never a cool kid, but in in the other school that they were in before, he could pretend to be like the cool kid among his circle of friends who were like the computer users. But now there are no computer users at this rural main school. And so he's just a nerd. Oh yeah. It's burning (laughs) his ass up. Yep. (laughs) It's just making him a huge jerk. 
the uh really reading you know reading this i was like this is the kid from uh from perfect tides oh uh mara no no the, no, no her, her brother. brother yeah her Tim. brother who sucks yeah <laughs> it's like his whole deal too that is yeah no he is he is exactly that type of character man yeah. <laughs> if you were a boy who liked the computer in the late 90s and your parents got divorced golly, it's over for you dude you're yeah. you're done <laughs> yeah uh so the the mom and the brother fight a lot uh and they get into it while they start out on this trail and Trisha really has to pee. This is the other reason why desperation is coming up because they are both novels about why having to stop to pee is awful and it will ruin your life. You should never do it. Um, never pee. That's when they get you. Uh, so she goes off the trail to go to the bathroom and she's also there's a little bit of willfulness there because they're ignoring her in, to argue. And so she's like, fine, I'm going to go do this on my own, uh, except she gets turned around in the woods and can't find her way back to the trail. And from that point forward, uh, she is just walking through the woods, trying to figure out how to get somewhere and kind of for for a good portion of this, she's following a creek or a river because she believes she's heard like you know, some some piece of advice uh, that uh, rivers always flow to like settlements, right, to people. And mm-hmm. so she thinks if she just follows the river, she will eventually find people to help her, um, except yeah. we, we, as we find out at kind of the end of the novel, she kind of has done this in the wrong direction, I think, is, is the idea. No, she did it right. No, she oh. did it right. No, she she beefs it eventually. So, like, yeah. yeah. And I I mean, technically, the the principle is sound, right? Yes. Because if you find running water, it will run to a bigger piece of water. And if you follow the bigger piece of water, you will eventually find a road or something, right? Mm-hmm. Eventually, you get to a big enough river that someone cares about it, right? That is that is conceptually lost in the woods, probably not the worst thing you can do. Although, if you are, like, 20 feet from a trail... Maybe just yell and don't go anywhere. It would be my suggestion for all nine-year-olds who listen to the show. <laughs> uh, but no, she beeps it in one of the great moments, one of a great Stephen King narrative moments where the final moment where she like abandons her plan at the end, right? She gets to the second swampland. Oh, yeah. She gets to a marsh. It's actually not a swamp. She gets to a marsh. And she gets to the marsh and she's like, I don't want to go through another swamp again. I guess I'm just going to kind of dogleg it off over here and try to find my way. And if she'd kept going like another half mile, she would have hit people. She mm-hmm. would have hit a lake with right. people at it. Right. So like, yeah, I, the, the book even says like principle is sound. It right. all works out. Uh, and I love that. I That is that is mm, mm, perfect. No notes, Steve. You, da- you did it. Right. Oh, and it's also it would like, only be better if she died. After that. <laughs> well, you know I, was, I mean, I was going to say like, this is this also Steve, the, 1990 Steve, do, 1999 Steve does not have the uh, the the desire to kill this child in the woods. Mm-hmm. If he'd written this in 1981, that kid would be dead, mm-hmm. dead in the woods. Yeah, this is also off screen. <laughs> I thought of this while uh, reading it and forgot it until you just said this. Uh, but like, this is also a um, kind of response to Cujo. And the mm-hmm. worldview that ins- inspires Cujo, because the thing about the, the the lake that she doesn't get to 
that we also learn is that it was like, you know, at any other time of year or at any other day, uh, you would have heard the people on the lake because people yeah. would have been out there on their motorboats and whatnot. But the weather on this day just happened to be so poor or whatever that no one was out. And so she didn't hear them. Right. So it's the Cujo kind of thing where, uh, you know, any other day, something else could have happened. But on this specific yeah. day, this one thing that normally you could have counted on wasn't going on. And therefore, someone got locked into a worse situation. It's good. Mm -hmm. I just like I like every part of that kind of thing. It's like absolute bleakness of contingency. Mm -hmm. That's the good Steve. Now, like the flip side, which is like, golly gee whiz, ain't it great that we all get saved by the grace of God? I don't really care about that part. You know what I mean? Like, I understand that that's like narratively necessary and like in King's uh, literary worldview at this point, can't speak to his personal worldview, but I can say with some authority that it's part of his literary worldview at this point in the 90s, you got to like suture up reality with faith. Like mm -hmm. it just can't go the other way. I What is great to me is that I've read books after this. The accident really throws him for a number on this thing, I think. Uh -huh. And he he goes back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like in some ways, I think we're going to have a year now of, you know, the next year of King finishing up the Dark Tower and, you know, going places with that. And then going back to Bleak Steve, you know what I mean? He like pendulums yeah. in a different direction, which is very cool to me. So anyway, we'll figure that stuff out on the other end. But... Uh, but yeah, there, there's all of that kind of stuff. And eventually, you know, she wanders her way out of it. What do you think about her as a character? What's her name? Trisha? Yeah, Trisha. Trisha okay. McFarland. What, what do you what do you think about? Because you're right. She's got this kind of willfulness, has this kind of reflectivity because she's like, my brother sucks. He's being an asshole. And she, she's got like a lot of insight into him into like why he's being an asshole. All the stuff that you just said about him. Uh, being a nerd and bullied and like maybe this being a part of that right is uh that's that is her observation of him too right mm -hmm. like that's that's attached to her pov and not everything in this novel is attached to her pov which is which is interesting too yeah um so trisha i think is she is an all right character i don't think she grated me as much when I read this when I was also like, so she's like nine. And so I would have read this when I was maybe like 13, 14, if not a little bit younger. Yeah. Um, she grates on me a little now, if only because I am more sensitive, I think to the ways that adults write young people. Yeah. Um, and there is just something a little odd about the way that she gets written, I guess like King trying to write a, a nine-year-old girl from 1998. There's, there's just something, and particularly like, you know, this is like in, in a general sense, like it's valid. It makes sense, right? How he does this, but like her best friend is this girl named Pepsi Robichaux. Uh, God, right? And so, like a lot of uh, it, it, it does the Gerald's game thing where a lot of uh stuff is happening in um. Uh, the girl's head and she has kind of like characters and voices that she responds to. Right. And so like one of them is her friend, Pepsi Robichaux, uh, who shows up sort of constantly as, uh, you know, just like 
her friend who is kind of her taste maker, right? Like the thing, like the things that Pepsi thinks are cool are the things that she thinks are cool, but also, and I I've saved this for the end. So you could hear me say that her name is Pepsi a million times. Stephen uh-huh. King has chosen to name this character Pepsi, which is kind of like some weird, vague, right wingish classism inflected kind of th- like there's something going on there like these these kid like people today are naming their kids pepsi and, yeah and, i don't and, i don't know if it, i yeah i guess like that's part of it right it, it is like the kids these days you know what's happened to this country right well it's like and pepsi every is part a, of her is just like she is like uh if in St- in a Stephen King novel from the eighties, she would be black. Yes, that's the thing, and, right? And I can't express, I can't explain why that is true. But there's something going on here about like she is the engine of like interest and coolness, and like, uh, yes, she she's uh, she knows I, what's yeah. cool. She's like sexually knowing, not like yeah. in a in a like bad or creepy way, but like. She's the girl who, when she thinks something is awesome, she calls it sexual. Yeah. Right. She's she's a little uh, uh, moving into like young womanhood in a way that Trisha finds, you know, alluring or admirable or, or whatever. But like Pepsi is marked as cool. She, she's marked as like a center of culture and historically in King that would get displaced onto non-white people. Mm hmm. And I don't know why she's in the thing. How many fantastical creatures do you need? I guess she is also, you know what, you know, I've said that. This this is maybe one of the things that makes me think this is Gerald's game. This is the same thing that happened in Gerald's game. She also has a cool friend. Oh, that's right. Huh. Right, right. The cool fr- she- Yeah, who like actually like does feminism or whatever. Yeah, right, right. I gotta, I gotta, uh, I gotta figure out who this is. Hold on. Uh, Jesse, boo, 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 boo. She's not, she's not the good wife. She's not goody. No. Ruth. Ruth. Yeah. Yes. Ruth Neary. Hmm. There you go. Okay. But yeah, there's it's some- the same thing. Yeah, there. It's the same thing, but it also feels like less authentic. It feels like more of a stereotype, right? This feels like yeah. this is a man making up a nine-year-old girl who would be cool to another nine-year-old girl who he also made up. Oh, you know what? I I do know. I, I was like, why am I like? Why do I have this belief that this character would be in a previous novel, Black? Because she serves the exact same function as um. Uh, oh gosh, the guy who like sets him on his journey in the talisman. Oh, Speedy, Speedy. What do you mean by that? Well, like, uh, keeps coming back up to like oh. provide advice, and also is like the backstop of like what is neat about the world and good. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So the other thing worth mentioning then also is that Tom Gordon is black, um, yeah. and uh, you know, she's like he's her favorite baseball player. Like, I don't think that actually like i think like tom gordon being black is just kind of like is mentioned right it's it's not uh quite he's being positioned as the the maker of culture but that's another way in which uh race is showing up here because or it's worth noting because also 
uh, she has a crush on him, although it doesn't feel mm. like oh, a, yeah. a a real crush, right? In the in the way that yeah. like she's nine years old, and it's very very clear that she is kind of transposing some of her feelings about her father onto Tom Gordon yeah. as kind of like yeah. a more reliable or like sort of frankly like more glamorous uh, uh yeah. male authority figure. Yeah, and less drunk. Yes. Her father her father's an alcoholic. And yeah. that's like part of the reason that they're divorcing or whatever. The Yeah, I think that's going on here. Although I do think that that's like a pretty big swing, you know what I mean, from Steve mm-hmm. uh, for what is ostensibly a little white girl to to be crushing on a, you know, to have this like big quotation marks same as you're talking about crush, right? There's this kind of like social imposition that her fascination with him must be a crush. I mean, that's what people keep saying to her Mm -hmm. and i don't even know if that's the case right like i think you're right it's something closer to worship and it's something closer about you know god forbid me say this word cathecting her feelings for her father into the figure of of tom gordon right Mm -hmm. um but but something like that's going on for sure yeah well it's and also like you know she talks about how he's handsome and like yeah i looked it up tom gordon 1998 like you know good looking guy but also he's not the idea of a nine-year-old girl having a uh, romantic crush on specifically this baseball player is is a little like it feels it feels a little bit like the the uh, uh, cathexis that you were talking about, right? She's not out here for a member of a boy band or something like that, which is kind of like the more recognized uh, right. uh, crush object, right? That that kind of heartthrob. There is something. Can, you, can we can we yeah. flip it? Can you okay. imagine if she was like? Oh my god! She like puts the earbud in, and she's listening to Usher, and she like <laughs> looks out, and she see she sees like fully hype Williams doubt Usher, <laughs> like in the woods, and Usher continues to guide her through the thing. That would that, <laughs> that would be good. Right. That would be legitimately good. <laughs> kind of in the way that uh, in uh, "Be Mean to Me," you know, the, mm-hmm. there's that evil poster. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know. Anyway, you know, oh, so we're like going to do opposite. the inversion of that. Yeah, it's it's Usher guides you through yeah. your being lost in the woods. He's like all whited out. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he's, he's never dirty, even in the swamp. And that's oh how you God. know he's holy and clean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good. Or it's every Backstreet Boy. It's all all five of them. Uh, I think it's so weird that the Backstreet Boys are in sync themselves. Do not get brought up here. We get instead a completely false boy band called Boys to the Max. Completely cool. fictionalized. All right, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what's up with that. But in and uh, but Hanson shows up. Yeah. Do you think maybe uh, you think maybe the Backstreet Boys don't exist in the Kingiverse? You maybe. think that's, that's maybe the thing? <laughs> maybe Steve like looked at the lay of the land in 1998. He was like, "I'm gonna get rid of all these boy bands except for Hanson, and then come up with my own super boy band." Hold on, I gotta look something up real quick. I'm I'm checking. Uh, hold on, I'm looking here. Mm-hmm. I'm got, hold on, I'm checking something out before I do it. All right. All right. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. What what date? Okay. What when did this come out? April 6th. This Some- is a mere couple months before the release of Lou Vega's Mambo number no. 5. <laughs> 
which I believe we've talked about on the show, but this went around virally a little bit. You know, a document for history, in case you care. Mm-hmm. Stephen King said that he played Mambo Number 5 so much that uh, Tabitha threatened to leave him. <laughs> so this would mean that he is listening to Mambo Number 5 in the same time frame in which the accident occurs. Right before... There is a universe in which... And maybe it's a universe we live in, right? Or maybe it's one right next door. Mm-hmm. Where Stephen King wakes up in the morning, hammers out his 12 pages for the day, listens to Mambo number five on repeat 15 times while doing <laughs> so. Tabitha says, Steve, you better get out of this goddamn house. I'm going to kill you. He walks outside and is obliterated by a van. Wow. Has anyone ever asked what he was? Did he listen to Mambo number five the day of the accident? Because he could have. He had his AirPods in. <laughs> Thank God this is before <laughs> AirPods. Yeah. Let, let me look at the accident date. When was it? Uh, Wait. It was the 19th, wasn't it? It's June 19th. Yeah. So it's a month before Mambo number five comes out. This is even weirder. So Mambo number five is post-accident. Stephen King. This is a better universe. <laughs> Stephen King is obliterated by a van first. In in the the you know the hospital room, recouping. Oh my god! <laughs> falling back down into the the well of addiction for pain pills, he begins to loop Mambo Number Five over and over again. Tabitha says, "Steve, if you don't stop listening to Mambo Five, you're you know you're in traction. You are uh you know attached to all these machines. The final straw in this emotionally difficult time for all of us." If you listen to Mambo number five one more time, I will leave you. <laughs> it's so much more poignant that way. Mm-hmm. It's funnier if he listens to it the morning of the accident and then gets hit by a, a van. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. ultimately, that's tragic. I don't want anyone to be hit by a van. But if you're making the cartoon of this, that's funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I make my Looney Tunes about when Stephen King got hit by a van, that's a funnier thing for him to, to be listening to Mambo number five, walk outside, get hit by a van. Okay. <laughs> that's the Family Guy episode. Uh-huh. You know? Much more tragic for it to be like October and he like can't walk and he's just <laughs> hammering Mambo number five over and over again on the repeat while like just just wallowing in Vicodin or whatever. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> that's uh, uh, she's like, that's not the thing I'm going to divorce you for, Steve. I'm going to divorce you because of the Mambo number five stuff. When we read Dreamcatcher, that's going to be my background music. Just it, Mambo number five on loop. We should put that on the mixtape. Yeah, <laughs> for that episode. Anyway, okay, sorry, got off, got us off track, but uh, but yeah, so she she's got uh, she gets lost in the woods, as you said, right? She's got what with her? She's got a um, she's got a backpack. Yeah, she's for got a day trip backpack. It's got some like food in it, like a tuna fish sandwich or something. Her surge, the all important bottle of surge, but also a mm-hmm. bottle of water, uh, a hard boiled egg, um. Who's taking a hard-boiled... Is this a common thing? I'm not a big hiker. Is it a common thing to take a hard-boiled egg with you on a hike? I I don't know. Uh, I'm not an intense hiker, but I've never taken a hard-boiled egg with me on one, so... I'm going to search that up, too. Hard-boiled egg on a hike? Yeah. Apparently, yeah. I mean, it makes sense uh, if you are okay with the idea of eating probably a warm, hard-boiled egg. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it right now. (laughs) 
every, before we record every episode, I I uh, I boil up a hot you know a hot dozen. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. That's what we call them. The hot dozens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no. 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 Uh, she's got so all that stuff. She's got her Walkman that doubles as a radio, and she's got her signed uh Red Sox hat signed by Tom Gordon himself. Hmm. Yeah. I don't. I don't know why. Because it's special. I guess. Uh, and she's got a parka. Or no, no like what? a rain slick, right? Yeah, Something rain like slicker, that? not a parka. Not a parka it's not the right weather. It would be Look, so- I said I'm not a hiking guy, okay? <laughs> but- she's got the Fisher, the Gordon Fisherman full body rain slick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Walking through the woods. She's all yellow. Yep. Yellow everything. Um, but yeah, so she, you know, it is a little bit of like, uh, it, she gets tortured so much over the course of this book that she meta reflects on what kind of God would torture a a character. So, Mm -hmm. you know, which is why I was saying, you know, maybe, maybe there's some, uh, real credence to the Lutz method of reading King reflecting on his own method here. Mm -hmm. Cause she, what, what, let's, uh, enumerate her tragedies. She falls down a huge slope. Yep. No, that's not even the first thing that happens. Well, she gets lost. That's the first thing. Well, she gets lost, and then she panics. Mm-hmm. It starts running all around and faints. Mm-mm. And then one of the like the worst things that's in this whole book happens. So I'm going to read it here because she says uh, she's talking about the pack here. She's talking about a VC Andrews novel. I got to find the right right page here. It's before we're talking about the subaudible. Boop, 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 boop. I'm, gonna, I'm flipping find my page. Beep, 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 beep. Uh, there's. Do we want to talk about. Uh, oh, yeah, here we go. It's the end of. All the chapter titles, by the way, are uh, like baseball shit. Yeah. yeah. I just don't care. I, I That's all I'm going to say about it. I have more to say about it, but I'll let you finish first. Trisha had just the end of uh, third inning. Mm-hmm. Trisha had just enough time to think, I'm fainting. This is fainting. And then she went down on her back in the bushes. Her eyes rolled up to whites, the bugs hanging in a shimmering cloud above her small, pallid face. After a moment or two, the first mosquitoes alit on her eyelids and began to feed. Uh, 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 She gets so many insect bites throughout this whole book. Well, and then her eyeballs like swell up because she's been bitten on the eyelids so much. Yeah. God, mosquitoes suck. Mm -hmm. Let's get rid of them. Yeah. You can't figure this out? Yeah. As yeah. a species? Let's uh, screw fly solution this. They did, uh, uh, you know, there's like a big, uh, like, ethics debate around this. We could do it. We could genetically engineer mosquitoes to die. Do you know that? I mean, I'm not surprised. And there's like a big, should we do it? Mm-hmm. And like, no, objectively, no. <laughs> I'm reading this book and I'm going, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Making me anti-mosquito. Yeah. Propaganda's uh, working. <laughs> uh, yeah, so a- as you mentioned, this this book is divided. The chapters are divided up into, into baseball shit. It's like pregame, first inning, second inning. Uh, this, this, this is fine. This is like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Like, it's a nice little method, and she likes baseball. We're, we're doing great. And then, and then it does the thing that really just, I mean, it's fine that the book does it, right? But it really hammers home why I don't like sports Mm -hmm. after the third inning, we get to top of the fourth. 
yeah. then bottom of the fourth. It's like suddenly we're subdividing. It's like, yeah. no, you can't do that. I remember the first time I went to a, uh, I think it was a basketball game when I was a real little kid and they had like the clock on the wall. And I was like, this is yeah. awesome. I know how long I have to be here and pretend to care. No, no. And then, and then they called a timeout and that clock stopped. And yeah. it turns out so many sports do this. Bullshit. Bullshit. You cannot show me a clock that tells me how long I have to be in a place and then you get to stop it. Bullshit. Um, I mean, I hate to tell you about like time. It's arbitrary. <laughs> you know, it's just like a thing we invented to like subdivide reality. <laughs> it's not it's not real. <sighs> I mean, what do you think happens when time flies when you're having fun? Oh, that's when I'm experiencing a uh, flow. Oh, I got it. Yeah, yeah assembling uh, microprocessors in my uh, uh, computer factory or whatever. Making, yep. yeah. Very good. <laughs> Very good. Awesome. Check out Game Studies Study Buddies, <laughs> the show where we get angry about flow. Uh, anyway, yeah. So, what are some other things that happen? She gets. Eaten to hell and back by mosquitoes. Uh, it rains. It rains on her. She puts on her uh, poncho. Mm -hmm. She starts like developing pneumonia. Um, yeah. She falls down a long rock slide cliff mm -hmm. and catches and gets like flung up in the air. Mm -hmm. And then like gets her arm scraped apart and her face beat up and her legs all hurt. All kinds of stuff. Mm hmm. Uh, she eventually uh, runs out of water, but then she finds a stream and she drinks out of that, but then gets really, really sick. So she is like puking and stuff like she's got uh, diarrhea or like dysentery or something. Um, she also uses her gumption to remember that there are berries that are safe to eat once she's out of uh, her food. So that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, I, but that's also, it's a real, like, uh, Stephen King got the info, but didn't, like, go and eat a bunch of berries in the woods, which is, like, you can eat, if you find a bunch of berries in the woods, awesome. You can eat as many as you want. If you eat more than, like, a handful of berries, you're messed up. Humans are not meant to eat, like, 15 dozen berries in a sitting. <laughs> just, like, period. You know what I mean? It's just gonna be bad for you. Mm-hmm. You're going to have some real intestinal discomfort is what I would say, but, but, uh, that's okay. It still makes for good stuff. She falls in the swamp. Mm -hmm. She, she gets her feet wet, which is like bad. You don't want to get your feet wet. Yeah. Having to wander through the woods. Ooh. Um, trying to think of what other, she sees animals. Mm -hmm. Like she sees, uh, all kinds of stuff being ripped apart. She has, she gets psychologically damaged that way. Mm hmm. She's seeing like claw marks on tree trunks and things. That's right. Um, what else? What else? What else could be the thing that she experiences? Uh, I think that might be <laughs> it, right? Is there any other like terrible? She does get more bug bites as the thing goes on. Yeah. I mean, ma mainly, right? It is just uh, 
it's not that there are very few like set pieces or like the set pieces that exist are things like you mentioned the wetlands, right? Or like the swamp mm-hmm. or whatever. She tries to walk across it and her like foot sinks in and she loses her shoe. And then she's like screaming at the swamp to like give her back her shoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of like incident, um, it all just kind of runs together in the same way that it runs together for Trisha, right? She just like falls asleep, wakes up. She, she, ends every night by listening to the baseball games and then eventually starts imagining she's seen Tom Gordon hanging out with her and like talking to her. Uh, But yeah, I mean like apart from that, there is not a real strong like arc or trajectory other than like the increasing push of the fantastical elements into the narrative as her uh, supplies start dwindling and she gets more and more ill. Mm-hmm. yeah she's like because once she starts drinking the like um river water creek water whatever right she very quickly starts like breaking down mm-hmm. she's like hallucinating she's like extremely feverish wandering through the thing she's like out of food too at that point mm-hmm. and so like then it just goes like full do you ever see uh you ever see the ritual uh the is that the movie about the dudes who like go on a hike in Sweden or something? Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. Their, their friend dies and they like yes. kind of like mm-hmm. do a memorial hike or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then like uh, one dude breaks his leg or whatever, and then they gotta like deal with that. Yeah. And then it like turns into like full on horror shit. Yeah. Uh, it's kind. Of, it kind of hits that point for me. Mm. I think that's like a fun movie, by the way. If people haven't seen it, it it's is not like you know. I, I don't think it's going to like change your life or anything. That's fun. Got a really cool monster mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I thought was pretty neat. But uh, the uh, but it, you know it kind of goes that way. It goes in the the classic lost in the woods kind of stuff. Um, and I thought that was pretty cool. But uh, not a lot of like you were saying, right? Like incident in terms of like stuff that happened kind of like dwindles into nothing except for when the narration just zooms right out of her perspective and goes and does some other stuff. Right. We also, so we and get, that's very cool. Yeah. We get, uh, uh, updates on the search for her and, uh, you know, n- in a more classic King kind of stuff, how that search for her goes wrong, right? How the search kind of, uh, makes top level decisions or assumptions that actually mean that they aren't going to find her. So like, decreasing the brutal indictment of the 90s by the way (laughs) yeah things like decreasing the area that they're searching in uh like kind of late in the book there's a an anonymous tip that's called in that she's been kidnapped by some like known sex offender uh and so the entire search pivots into trying to hunt down this guy who's a registered sex offender who it turns out has nothing to do with anything it's just someone knew about him and like called in his name but it meant that they weren't really looking for her in the place that she was for like two days oh i don't even think maybe i missed it but i don't even think that he that that like that's the narrative that's pushed does the guy even exist oh he exists do they find him yeah they find Did him. i just missed that okay yeah they find him he's in like upstate new york or something yeah yeah, yeah, because that's what they talk about, right? But mm-hmm. I just didn't. But yeah, so like immediately, she's gone for what s- ten days total or something. It's like it's longer than a week. Um, yeah, uh, she's gone for several days, and like, yeah, you're exactly right. Like, 
after a couple days, they like make the assumption she's dead. Mm-hmm. And she's just like zipping through the woods out there. You know what I mean? Like she's having a grand old time. Uh, and uh, and it is like perfectly threading the needle, you know, to like walk through to never touch civilization somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's just out in the woods. And, uh, and so there's that. And so then they start, you're right. You know, they, they decrease the area because it's like, well, she's probably dead. And then they get this anonymous tip about this person. And then they like start looking for him. They put resources toward that. And then they make the area even smaller. Cause they're like, well, we're looking for her belongings so we can confirm this. Right. And it's this kind of, uh, the, it's, it's a very like classic Steve, I think in terms of his view of children, which is like. They can do more than you think they can. They are stronger than than we think they are. They are more independent and capable than we think they are. And it is our diminished belief in the capabilities of children in the 90s that actually harms her more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Right. To see them only as like victims or people who are going to die in the woods. That actually that that kills her. You know what I mean? If there it is only because she walks her way out of the woods that she survives if the adults left up to their own devices doing the things that adults do in the nineties had just, you know, run its course, she would be dead, Mm -hmm. which I think is a fun, I think that's an interesting ideological maneuver. And I think it like works here. Um, And it's like totally embedded in the narrative, right? There's like no breaks or anything in the, in the paragraphs. It's just the next paragraph. We are zoomed out to her like family doing stuff or whatever. Those are really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We see six or seven sections over the course of the book. Yeah, we see like the parents having to like reconvene uh, as they are there for the search, uh, and eventually they end up sleeping together unexpectedly, which may or may not signal a rekindling of their relationship. Like, it's the right move, I think, to leave that ambiguous. We don't get a confirmation of it. Uh, we get to see the brother feeling like, "Oh shit, this is my fault because." I should have been like, I shouldn't have been fighting with mom. We should have been like watching out for her and he feels really guilty. Um, mm-hmm. Good stuff. Yeah. He starts, uh, he starts becoming, there's a world in which she dies in this book and he's like the villain of a Stephen King book in like 2022. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? We get like the weird sequel where Trisha's brother is like driving people out to the woods and leaving them. Yes. Oh my God. It's so close. It's mm-hmm. so close to like what a Steve would do, you know, in the future. Uh, write a sequel to this one, Steve. Yeah. Why are you giving us Cujo 2? I don't want that shit. I want a sequel to this book. Yeah, I don't even know what the Cujo 2 is a short story, though. Yeah, sure. So who knows what's going to happen there? Uh, space dog comes <laughs> back to haunt people. We can only actually have- a meteor went by the planet. Uh huh. And Cujo's soul went into it, <laughs> and now it's come back, and it's going to possess a, a different dog. <laughs> oh my god! So if we got it, that's if my we, called shot on the plot of Cujo too. If we got uh the if we got a Tom Gordon sequel in this coming year, twenty twenty four, Trisha would be thirty four years old. Cool. Awesome. So she's give it to me. Give like where is millennial Trisha? I want yeah. I want like uh. I want Danny. I want Trisha. <laughs> I want to meet up with Holly Gibney. You know what I mean? Like, give me all the King character. Yeah, put uh, put the kid from the Talisman in here too. Yeah. <laughs> give me the Avengers. If we're gonna keep like going back to the well, Steve, like go to the well. I want to slurp it up from the well. <laughs> Putting a team together. 
who puts the team together in the Kingiverse? I know. I was just thinking, like, who's who's the who's the Nick Fury? Uh, it's it's like an olden wizened, like more grisly uh, uh, Eddie from the Dark Tower. Like some some kind of time shenanigans mean he has like come back as uh, mm. an older man. I think it should be someone even even more per- peripheral to the to the core king universe. <laughs> Mm, I think it should be it should be the uh, the the fat best friend. You know, it's the only way to explain it. You explain him. You know, we talked about uh. extensively about the the fat phobia involved, right? But the the fat friend who sucks from the talisman, who has to be like dragged across the finish line. Oh, oh, uh, God! What the hell was his name? The son of the villain. Yes. You uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sloat Martin was his name. Martin. I can't. I don't remember. think his name was Morgan. <laughs> his dad's name was Morgan. It's Morgan Sloat. Is the yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember what the younger kids. It should be yeah, him. Where the hell did he go? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. You know, like a real tertiary, <laughs> like out. And he brings the team together of all the like pro tags, and like then you can have your wizened Eddie. You can have Charlie from Firestarter. Uh, you got to get like a villain, so they like mm-hmm. they go and get the pusher. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. For some reason. <laughs> they get the guy who like pretends to be a blind uh unhoused person from that short story we read uh we haven't read that that's in hearts in atlantis oh is that in hearts in atlantis okay yeah and that one that, 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 will, that guy from the future. the future yeah they get the sun dog <laughs> it's the mascot yeah like someone that they just like they show off the polaroid and people get sucked into it mm-hmm. it's like someone else's superpower <laughs> i could do it yeah hire me also i'll do castle rock just let me do castle rock season three <laughs> or season four i just want to issue a minor it. correction the friend from the talisman is not the fat best friend there is a fat kid in that like boys school who he talks yeah. about oh richard yeah. richard is his name richard's defining characteristic is that he's too rational he's like dying right. he's That's like right. he's like dying of magic poison and he's like there's a logical explanation for this <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The guy who is uh, like the the fat guy in the thing, he like rots or something, right? It turns into like a monster. I can't uh, remember. I don't remember. I like something bad. Something bad happens to all those boys. That's right. Like, Richard's too rational and like can't accept that like reality is melting around him. Yeah. But that's why he's so good at bringing the team together. That's he can like right. do the math. Uh huh. Right. He's, yeah, he's the logistics guy. He was supposed to be a breaker. <laughs> that hasn't come up yet either. No. D- is it astonishing to you that we've gotten this far in like the Kingiverse and the word breaker has never appeared? I mean, literally next month, Cameron. I know, but I'm just saying, like, this is our this is the last episode where I can say that. So yeah. I gotta get it in. Actually, I you know what? We'll find out. I don't even know if the word shows up there. I don't we it might does. have to it does. it does straight up. Okay. Yeah. I, I feel pr- I feel like I'm at like 99% confidence interval on this one. I know that conceptually it's definitely there, but I don't know if the term is there. So I think that little rhyme appears there. Okay. That's why. About the Red King in the tower or whatever. Uh, she's listening to the radio the whole time. I know we mentioned it, but I just want to like get the plotty plot part of it. So like she's got a little Walkman radio in her pack. And she's constantly worrying about it and about the, uh, you know, getting broken when she's like smashing all her bones apart and all this stuff. And uh, she she's able to listen to, to the radio. And so she finds out that people know she's missing, which is pretty good as she continues to wander deeper and deeper into the forest. And also she hears some baseball games occasionally. Mm-hmm. 
And that's kind of it. She eventually, I do like the walkout that happens at the end because she ends up, she's being stalked this whole time by something in the woods. And we get these other really cool narrative moments where she's like falling asleep and then the the kind of narrative keeps going and it's like, and something was watching her as she slept. And that happens a few times. It's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it hits Stephen King, like still working his magic. We have not gotten like really, I would not say we've gotten creepy Steve in a while. Right. Have we gotten like, like a horror, you know, something's haunting the the halls here. Have we had that Steve in like four or five books? I mean, bag of bones sort of gets into, I mean, bag of bones is very, very Mm. gothic, uh, but it's not as, it's not as clear cut as what you're talking about here with just like, and then she like partly because bag of bones is the first person narration. So it can't even do that move. Right. I think what you're right. describing I guess that's a part of the thing. Yeah. Right. There's something about the way that King works third person narration uh, that he can do like foreboding really well. Like the, the irony of I, the reader knows something bad in a way that the characters do not. Uh, so we didn't really get that with bag of bones. Um, and yeah, all the places where that might happen in Bag of Bones kind of gets gets reduced to mystery in some ways, right? Or like a secret mm-hmm. because it's like the stuff where it's like, uh, you know, the fist banging on the insulation or whatever. That's yeah. like creepy. But also it's like, well, what the hell is that? And like the the POV character, right, reduces that to like, well, what is that? Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem particularly like scared, even though he does run out of his house at one point. Yeah, uh, this is like. No one knows what's happening because there's a creature in the woods. I think that's cool. Right. Um, But we get a few things and that eventually gets turned into this God of the Lost thing. She has a really creepy encounter where she like looks at a creek and that's it's like legitimately scary to read where she like looks across the little stream she's following and there's like a creature, two creatures in a black robe. No, two creatures in white robes Mm -hmm. and one in a black robe. Yeah. And like the one is the sub audible. The other is what is it? Tom Gordon. What's the other one? Uh, it's yeah. So it's like this is this is the part that feels really like the talisman to me. Right. This mm-hmm. is the type of vision that you mm-hmm. would get in the talisman where it's these very fantasy style like figures and robes. And one. Yeah. The sub audible is uh, represented by like her science teacher. <laughs> right. Uh, right. 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 Yeah. Right. He's he's just kind of like a. He was like a helpful nerd, but uh, that's what he is. And yeah, I think the is the other one. Yeah, I don't remember if the other one's Tom Gordon, but then there's the God of the Lost, which is the one in or the prophet of the God of the Lost, whatever. Uh, this figure in a black robe that like pulls back its hood and is like it's got a, a wasp nest for a head, which is a repetition of the image of the wasp nest from The Shining. Yeah. Uh, still scary. Still mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> Wasps still suck. Yeah. Still no good. Mm-hmm. You heard it from me first. Wasps, they're scary. Uh, but yeah, so that thing, she you know, she's kind of haunted by that thing. Eventually, she finds a fence post, or like a gate post, actually, mm-hmm. and then walks out from there in like kind of like she she clicks L three and activates forest vision. <laughs> and is able to to see like an old path that might have been laid there and we get a real great Steve moment where like the narrative kicks out away from her POV and he like explains where it came from mm-hmm. and it's like hell yes rad very good 
Yeah. And then she um she follows it uh follows it out and eventually is found by like like uh like kind of like the town dump guy. Yeah. You know, like a salt of the earth character. Yeah, he's like he's season. he's hunting illegally. Oh, is he? Is that the implication here? I thought he's got a gun. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I thought. I thought it was explicitly said that he's like hunting illegally because he. Yeah. yeah maybe so. Because he prefer like he's kind of. You said he's the town dump guy. He's also. I don't know if he's a drunk, but it, it, he's that type of character, right? He's real like uh uh kind of a a sketchy dude who goes up and like hunts when he's not supposed to, but that's because he kind of like prides himself on the thriftiness of eating what he catches or whatever. Yeah. Being that kind of guy. Yeah. He, uh, so he finds her, recognizes her, and as he finds her and recognizes her, he sees her being stalked by this bear, mm-hmm. which is ostensibly the thing that's been murdering stuff all around her the whole book. And he kind of shoots it, but like wounds it, you know, mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't kill it. And then he takes her out of the woods. Well, importantly, uh, also, in her kind of delirium slash fantastical transcendence, uh, she takes out her Walkman and whips it at the bear and like <laughs> yeah. smashes it on the bear's face because she imagines yeah. herself like she she pulls it out of her bag and she sees it as uh, a baseball. And like yeah. Tom Gordon is like co- has been coaching her on like pitching. Uh, and so she like, pit- <laughs> yeah. she like, pitches. Uh, you the- know, I've been trying to really work on my pitch game. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, I think I'm going to starve myself and do about a 10 day wander in the woods, really get in there with the ghost of, uh, uh, Tom Gordon here. And I think that's going to take my game to the next level. That's like, that's my like new pitch for people. It's part of my Instagram, like influencer work that I do to make athletes better. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just rolling in money from doing that, by the way. <laughs> putting out the instagram ads it's like i won't can't believe what this 10 day uh retreat did for my pitch game first you got to tape your mouth shut for Mm -hmm. some reason that's a big part of it that's a big part of like anything like dude related these days you got to put some weird tape over your mouth okay you got that Mm -hmm. great next thing you got to go in the woods and starve yourself (laughs) you got to drink some real swamp water yeah uh, but it, but yes, yeah, so she does whip him. Uh, I hate this. The, the specific part where she like fantasizes the baseball. Yes. Okay. You want to say more about that? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, no, I do. I, this is, uh, like classic wrapping it up. Like all the themes got to run together. You know what I mean? All these things yeah. she did together and all the things she learned, they got to like, it's the most YA of the whole book to me. Uh, and it's the most like, Steve, we don't have to like wrap it up. Every plot thread doesn't have to go together. I don't know why I have to tell this guy that. You know what I mean? I never mm-hmm. thought I'd have to, to say to Stephen King, you don't have to wrap it all up. But uh, this is, I think, one of the great sins. You know, when people talk about like Stephen King doesn't know how to end a book. And I think sometimes we've agreed with that. And sometimes we haven't. Mostly it's just the books go on too long. That's really the issue. Mm-hmm. I think this is a book that is it it ends poorly. Yeah. I don't like that it's like and all of the lessons helped her learn how to throw a walkman good to like fight <laughs> the the bear god. I don't think yeah. that's okay. I think they should shoot the bear, the bear should run away. She gets taken out of the woods at the end. Like 
it's the the triumph of making it out of the woods against all odds does not need a capper for me. You know, I don't need the extra bit. Mm-hmm. That's a triumph already. I don't need the the cherry on the top. Oh, but the bear is so creepy, Cameron, because it gets up in her face and it's actually it's weird. It's um it's kind of a weird rerun of Shardik from the Wastelands because it's yeah. got like for some reason bugs crawling in and out of its nostrils. It's having a bad time. Yeah. yeah. It I seems like no, it's no, sick I, or let, something. Let me be clear. I don't I don't hate the bear part. Yeah. I'm okay with this part. And I even like the the ambiguity, even though I do think, like I said earlier, I think that the the book robs us of good ambiguity here, right? Mm-hmm. By producing um, you know, what I think is like and it was a bear the whole time. <laughs> Much like Gerald's game does, right? But yeah. Even bracketing that, I think the bear is fine. I don't like the, and then she uses the power of baseball God to <laughs> dispel the bear. You know, I don't like that part. Uh, I Because I don't think that's the triumph. I think the triumph is the bravery. And I don't think that the bravery itself or like the, the, you know, the will to live and the will to like wander through the desert like Christ, right? Which is like kind of the genre here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't think that needs the the cap off of, and then she uses her like baseball powers. <laughs> I just, I, I just think that's like unnecessary and it reduces everything to like, and, the, and then she sharpened the, the, you know, the, the knife of baseball powers enough to dispel bear God. I think it's better that she like is brave. And then like uh, some guy shoots the bear mm-hmm. and it doesn't kill the bear. It just runs away. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it case? does. Yeah. It's like, whoa, you hit me with a walk, man. Hey, boo-boo. Yeah. Hey, boo-boo. I don't like being shot at, okay? <laughs> hey, does it, uh, what do you think about the fact that, uh, that bear, he was best friends with the police. You think that's propaganda? I, I, I understood their relationship as being pricklier than that because he was always. More adversarial? Yeah, because he's stealing the picnic baskets. Yeah, but they, you know, he could have, he's got claws. He could have taken that guy out if he wanted to. That's true. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He could be running the woods. Do you think that maybe he's kind of got like a turncoat relationship? Because without the park ranger, right. there are no picnic baskets. If if those bears That's were to truly true. be free, uh-huh. if they were to truly be free, there'd be no tourism. And their very way of life would be destroyed. They would have to imagine something different. Yeah. No, actually, I think that's pretty persuasive. I mean, and, and it explains a lot, like the hat and the little tie that he wears. Like, mm-hmm. right, we're seeing the, uh, like, society has captured them, essentially. Yes. Now, does the little bear, does he wear clothes, too? He does, too. I think he has a bow tie. So he's only partially captured by ideology. Right. And so this is uh, this fits right into um, the Harvey Birdman episode where you find out that he's the Unabomber. Is that, is that true? Yeah, that's like one of the yeah, it's he's the the Unaboo And it turns <laughs> he's been like <laughs> sending uh, uh, like bomb cookie bouquets to people around the country. Harvey Birdman was just uh could it ever happen again? You know what I mean? Could, like could we <laughs> It was too good to live, you know? Yeah. <laughs> too weird to die. Harvey Birdman. <laughs> uh, but uh but yeah, like so carried out 
gets taken. I don't even remember what happens at the very, very end, which is weird. I just finished it. Oh, she like wakes up in the hospital and sees her That's right. family. That's right. And they're like, we're so glad you're alive. And she's like, me too. I didn't need this either. Post game. Get that out of here. Yeah, it's just there to, I think, I mean, it's the, you know, the Spielbergian nature of it. We got to have the scene that just lets us see that the family is together again for that catharsis. We couldn't possibly just assume that that happened. Yeah. I mean, overall, and I do, you know, I do think as we talked about at the beginning, I think some of this, like having the action that caps it all off, right. You know, the kind of summation of all of her stuff and throwing the thing, the final chapter, you know, that's the YA-ness of it. Right. Mm-hmm. In the kind of nebulous version of YA that existed kind of before the turn of the millennium. Um, yeah. Her- you know, Harry I, Potter wait, is like I, sinking its claws into the world in the I, background here. I, you know, we didn't mention that, but it, but having said that, when does that first book come out? Oh, it's before this, right? In fact, seven. Yeah. Do you think that's it? Cause she's eating Steve's lunch. Oh, do you think that's why King wrote this? I don't know. I mean that it lines up right. And like that, that's part of the deal is like her book sales, the Harry Potter book sales, like warp the whole market. You know what I mean? Right. They like they truly. Oh. And so I do wonder if he go, if he he's if he starts writing YA Steve here in order to cover some of that. Right. Well, and that's and in pretty short order, we're going to get the end of the Dark Tower, which surprisingly has some thoughts about Harry Potter. Um, yeah. So. Huh. Yeah, that kind of lines up, actually. Huh. I'm persuaded. Yeah. And I do wonder if, you know, that's part of the part of the deal here. I'm just looking to see if anyone else has noted this. Um, it doesn't seem like it. Hmm. Uh, the uh, yeah, I think it all works out at the end. I think it's OK. I, I like this book just fine. Yep. I don't think I'll ever read it again. Yeah. If you were looking for a good intro to Stephen King, I think it'd be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nope. I think it is a very good intro. I mean, definitely it's a good intro book, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't have trouble like, you know, giving this as like a gift to one of my tween nieces or nephews for Christmas or something like oh, that. Oh, no, yeah. As opposed to. The situation I headed off this past Christmas where I had to tell my mother-in-law, no, 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 do not give her pet cemetery. Why? Uh, the well, I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't actually say do not give her pet cemetery, but I was like, just so you know, there's a scene, a very long scene about a hand job in there. Yeah. How old is the kid? Twelve. I, I think I read pet cemetery around. there. I know. I also did. That was what I said. I was like, listen. I read it when I was about this age and like yeah. you see how I turned out. Uh, but I don't know if like you want to be grandma who gave me that book for Christmas. Just just letting you no, know. I, I think I, I you know, I'm giving you shit about it. I think that was uh, I think that's sensible advice. <laughs> I do also think that if you're like a tween who wants to read Stephen King, you kind of got to get there. I know. Own, you know I know. I mean? It's that's a little bit of it. It's going to happen, right? It's kind of like, ugh. Yeah, you don't want you. And here's the op. Here's the the flip on that, right? Mm-hmm. If grandma gives you pet cemetery, 
Mm-hmm. Maybe you maybe it doesn't hit. You know what I mean? Because Grandma gave it to you, right? And then you're like, "Why did Grandma give me this loofah handjob book <laughs> about dead kids <laughs> and like a guy's wife who sleeps with everyone in town?" Or at least that's what a demon told me. Uh huh. <laughs> you know, like yeah. maybe maybe you know what I mean? It's like right. uh, if uh, like if your parents gave you like uh, Ziggy Stardust, right? Right. It's not going to hit as hard. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, I don't know. What are the kids listening? What, what's like, uh, what's cool these days? It's like if your parents gave you uh, Fortnite. There you go. There we go. We got it. We're back. <laughs> We're cool again. Yep. You know how it works. Fortnite and uh, the trendiest water bottle you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. I'm cool now because I have a Stanley. <laughs> now it's a big giant green thermos <laughs> that carries approximately one gallon of liquid. Uh-huh. I'm cool. Yeah. That's all I care about. I do wonder what would happen. You know, so last. Uh, what if Trisha had a Stanley? <laughs> <laughs> That's how we update this. Oh, my that God. Is, we, ju- we just do it. We get Stanley to pay for the whole thing. It's made They're entirely in cash. It's, they it's gotta spend it. It's cut together entirely from like her TikTok posts. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I, you know, so last last semester, I taught a class where we had like a big part of the semester we spent on fashion talking mm-hmm. about fashion. And uh, we we looked at the mischief big red boot. Uh, you know what I mean? This Remember is the not, big red boot? I need to look this up. <laughs> Google big red boot. Big. You do know what it is. I feel confident. Big red boot. Oh, these things. Yeah, the okay. big red boot. Yes. Uh huh. So we lo- we uh, we were looking at them, and uh, my students were like. These are silly. No one should ever. A couple of them who are like kind of like fashion heads. They were like, these are cool. Mm-hmm. But mostly they were like, these are stupid. I love looking like Mickey Mouse. And toward the end of the semester, I was like, I could buy the big red boot and show up to class <laughs> in the big red boot. And like, would it be worth, you know, because I really started thinking, I was like, would it be worth the cash to show up <laughs> in the big red boot? Right. It's a pedagogical moment. Right. Of course. It, oh, it would be stuck in their head forever, right? Uh-huh. They'd be telling their grandkids about the time <laughs> they went to college. They they talked about the big red boot, talking about how dumb it is, and their professor shows up in the big red boot. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I did not do it, but the desire to do it in the same, you know what I mean? Like in the way that it would like ruin it for them in some ways, right? But also be iconic. Uh huh. I ultimately did not do it, but uh, it haunts me. Oh my oh, god, god! There's knockoffs that you can get. Oh, surely, yes. Bro. Bro, we're getting the big red boot. <laughs> we're getting the knockoffs. Our our next uh, set of video content is going to be us, like, tromping around, I don't know, Canada wearing these. That's right. Out, outdoor. Mm-hmm. Outdoor content for indoor kids. <laughs> Here we are at the Dead Zone gazebo wearing the big red boots. <laughs> Uh, they made a crock too. I'm seeing that. It's fun. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's yeah. it. We got some segments. Yeah, segments. So uh, the first segment is my favorite kingism. This is the part where we talk about some thing in what we just read—a piece of prose or a, a 
kind of narrative maneuver, whatever that we think is indelibly Kingy, something that really uh, shows King and his style and how it works. And mine is something we mentioned already, which are the check-ins with the other characters, right? The very, uh, simultaneously jarring, but also not at all confusing way that the narrative will just bamf out into here's what the parents were doing back in the motel, right? As they mm-hmm. were like worried, worrying themselves to death, right? As you mentioned, there's no uh, uh, break in, in the page here, right? There's not like a section break or anything. It is literally just uh, moving straight from Trisha to what is going on elsewhere. And it's like measured, precise, targeted. We never really get more of this uh, kind of scope out than we need to. And it's just really nicely done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mine is kind of like one of those weird narrative pieces on 207 for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the world of lights and cars and paved roads, she was dead. In this one, the one that existed off the path, the one where crows sometimes hung upside down from branches, she was close to it. But she kept on trucking. That one was her father's. You know, they they give provenance for all of her uh, catchphrases. Mm-hmm. Her course sometimes wandered, uh, uh, wavered a bit to the west or the east, but not often and not much. Her ability to keep moving steadily in one direction was nearly as remarkable as her body's refusal to give in completely to the infections in her chest and throat. Not as helpful, however. Her, her uh, path took her slowly but steadily away from the larger concentrations of towns and villages and deeper into New Hampshire's chimney. We haven't talked about this so, so far, but this book, I think, is like a return to form for King as a stylist of language. Mm-hmm. It's just good. Right. Well, and it's I think part of that is because. I mean, he he clearly likes writing larger stories. He would not do it if. uh it was something he disenjoyed. Um, but because this is such a targeted exercise that it feels like he can focus on prose more consistently than he has in kind of the recent past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Uh, what in the Kingiverse? This is the segment where we make connections between what we just read and in the larger King body of work. Uh, I already mentioned this, but the town where uh, Trisha and her family are living is the TR, uh, which is the location of Bag of Bones. And this is really close to Castle Rock when the search is on for her. It's in Castle. It's like, you know, headquartered in Castle County in Castle Rock. But apart from that, we don't really get any explicit uh, Kingiverse shout outs. I already gestured that there's a way in which um, if you're familiar with like the talisman, the uh, fantasy elements in the forest can feel very evocative of kind of ha- the metaphysics of that world, but it's never confirmed. It's all psychological there. Um, so it's really like an echo more of uh, style rather than like hard and firm connections between things, which we've gotten weirdly enough more recently. And this represents a drop off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but whatever. Uh, Uncle Stevie's mixtape because Stephen King loves music and we do too. We review all of the songs that are mentioned in, uh, what we just read. And so, uh, I start us off here, uh, Chumbawamba tub thumping. Uh, this is five stars. I've got Chumbawamba's amnesia. Two stars. The song sucks. (laughs) Uh, Chumbawamba, drip, drip, drip. Uh, three stars. It's a little better than the last one, I guess. 
We've got Chumbawamba's The Big Issue. Two stars. This song sucks. <laughs> uh, Chumbawamba, The Good Ship Lifestyle. I'm giving this one five stars because it's super weird. It like starts with like a lady like reading number station kind of things, and then it becomes another Chumbawamba song. So it's it's cool. Five stars from me. I got Chumbawamba's one by one. I'm giving it two stars because this song sucks. <laughs> uh, Chumbawamba, Outsider. Uh, three stars. It's it's fine. Whatever. I got Chumbawamba's Creepy Crawling. Two stars. This song sucks. <laughs> uh, Chumbawamba, Mary Mary. Four stars. Not as good as uh, Good Ship Lifestyle or Tub Thumping, but there's some interesting stuff going on here. Now, for this one, I did get Chumbawamba's Small Town, which I'm giving two stars because it sucks. Uh, Chumbawamba's I Want More. I'm um, giving that three stars. Yeah, I would take another Chumbawamba song if I had one. Chumbawamba's Scapegoat. Uh, two stars. Because this song sucks. <laughs> now, I actually noticed that you've missed, you've skipped. You've skipped a Chumbawamba song. Did I? I thought I got them all. You skipped uh, track 13, Top of the World, Ole Ole Ole. Oh, dear. Is that... Uh... You know what? I listened to it. I actually listened to the yeah. whole album. Uh-huh. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take this one for you, because I know this one's meant to be yours, but I will do okay. it. Okay. Uh, two stars. This song sucks. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't include it because it was on the European edition bonus track, and I assumed that Trisha did not listen to the european edition um i think it, yeah i think it's both okay i think it's on the u.s edition too oh, okay all right I, but i do think it's a bonus track in the way that like, in the 90s bonus tracks oh, yeah. quotation marks just started getting added to everything yeah and they wouldn't put them They're on, on the, the album yeah. what are you talking about they they wouldn't put them on the liner notes or anything but yeah yeah it's just weird that was cool um yeah so uh Chumbawamba's Tub Thumper is specifically mentioned as Trisha's favorite album. And so that's why we listen to the whole thing. I, I are, are these look, we got to we, we, we got to break kayfabe here. OK, mm -hmm. are those your real evaluations of these songs? <laughs> because this is one of the, I sat and listened to the whole album. And this is one of the worst things I've ever heard. It is. It Every song <laughs> begins with a fucking rad drum and bass beat mm -hmm. that then is immediately ruined by everyone involved. <laughs> I can't be more negative. The only reason I'm not giving it one star is that like they're not deeply offensive, right? <laughs> like it's mostly just like bad music. Uh -huh. It's not bad you know it's not like ontologically bad it's not bad for the universe for it to exist which mm -hmm. tends to be my what i reserve one star for which is why every bob dylan song gets one star but generally all of these songs are awful yes they are <laughs> they're surprisingly awful it's weird um the thing yeah i don't think it would be possible to make this many bad songs in a row the the uh the thought that I was having when I was listening to it is like how like sometimes you can listen to old music and be like, yeah, this is very much of a time and place. Yeah. And this doesn't even feel like of a time and place. 
like there's something weirdly incoherent about the entire like sound and the entire album where I was just I mean, there's a reason, I guess, to put this differently, uh, why they're like of of tub thumping uh, the part that I have in my head always and forever is 30 seconds of the song and not any of the other parts of the song. Not the other four minutes of yes, it. Yes, right. <laughs> every song on this album is four minutes long. <laughs> Minimum. Mm-hmm. Most, like, every song is so long. And they're actually, like, very stylistically discontinuous in a way that is fascinating to imagine this being, like, a huge album in 1998 or whatever. Uh, uh, yeah, yes. Like, they will be get, like, it's almost prog rocky without being, you know, 15 minutes long where it begins as one type of song becomes another type of song and then finishes as like a, a third kind of spin on the concept of music. Yeah. They all begin as like a drum and bass song or like electronic music from that era. Broadly, they got like a cool sample or whatever, right? Like tub thumping apparently starts with a, a sample on the yeah. album, which is interesting. Not the, you know, the single didn't. Uh, and then it's like, inevitably the dude will start singing he's like did you know about things that happened in the world and it's like all right this sucks this is like uniquely bad and then like the the female vocalist starts and it is just like waxing philosophical about england or some shit (laughs) every part is bad let me read something to you okay i read the the while i was suffering through this i read the spotify description of Chumbawamba. Mm -hmm. Chumbawamba were uh, they uh, they, uh, formed in Burnley, England in 1982. They they are called an anarchist pop group. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. After more than a decade in relative obscurity, much of it spent attacking the very notion of stardom. The band signed to a major label in 1997 and quickly scored a major international hit with the riotous single Tub Thumping. Now, people will remember this is the song where you get knocked down and you get up again. Mm -hmm. Okay, skipping a bunch of stuff. The band quickly became a thorn in the side of British conservatives, mounting a series of benefit concerts for a variety of anti-Thatcher causes and campaigns. Before long, they were also the subject of frequent police raids. I cannot imagine a less... interesting uh <laughs> riotous music that would make me want to become politically engaged than this and maybe it's because what we're listening to it's literally the album where they sell out you know yeah. using some 90s language here right mm-hmm. it's literally they're like all right whatever let's get on the major label but can you imagine listening because there's a couple of these songs that are about like england and shit mm-hmm can you imagine listening to Outsider, the the riotous song that, that you gave three stars to that's about, like, what is it like to be a social outsider? Mm-hmm. And the guy's, like, I don't know, half rapping about it? Yeah. The worst half rap you've ever heard? Can you imagine listening to that and being like, we got to change our whole fucking society? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I listened to it and I felt that way, but it was because I want to ban Chumbawamba at the federal level, right? Like, that's <laughs> that's my change of society. But I mean, like, from the ground up, right? Yeah, that was my other thought as I was listening to this was, like, I knew about Chumbawamba and their, like, political commitments. And also, like, when you think of music with political commitments, you usually imagine something with a bit more of an apparent edge to it than what's going on here, which is... 
I, I clearly like they're talking about uh, problems and whatnot, but like the tone of the music is just so observational or conversational. Like it's it's like I guess they're upset about these things. Yeah, I don't know. I I guess they're upset. That is the perfect distillation. I guess they're upset about this stuff. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm like mad at Stephen King for making me listen to this. Well, and I'm mad at us for committing to the bit. <laughs> and I guess I'm mad at you also. <laughs> yeah, I guess I did make an editorial decision here because uh, we just get that uh, uh, Tub Thumper is her and Pepsi's favorite album. So yeah. Now I did I did listen to the entirety of the Red Sox 1998 season. Uh huh. How was that? On archive.org is fine. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, uh, three stars. <laughs> uh, then we need to still finish up the mixtape uh, with a couple yep. of outliers. Uh, I got Hanson Mbop. This is legitimately five stars. Yeah, it's a good song. Mm-hmm. Like of the pop music of that era, right? Top top half easy, no question. And I got take me out to the ball game. Uh, one star. <laughs> what is this a date? You're gonna take me to a ball game? No thanks. There we have Wait, it. Hold on. What? Hold on. Hold on. What? Hold on. What? what? Is there? Was there another track on the take me out to the ball game original release that I forgot? <laughs> Wouldn't that be good? Take me home from the ball game. The sequel you song about the B. You forgot about the B side on the forty five. <laughs> Uh, no, no, you know, I was just thinking, you said, you know, we were just talking about, it. God, it's from 1908. <laughs> absolute banger by Albert von Tilzer. Uh, he, no, take me out to the ball game, right? We're okay. familiar with that lyric. Okay. okay. Take me out to the crowd. What the fuck does that mean? Take me out to the crowd. Like, take me out to the game in which I'm a part of the crowd. I think so. Right. Like we're oh. here at home. Just just a couple of us, but take me out to the big crowded ball game. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, you know, they can't really ever change the rules of baseball because of take me out to the ball game. Oh, uh-huh. One, yeah. two, three strikes are out. If they were like, there's a fourth strike. You know what I mean? If they like, <laughs> right. they would be like, well, oh, the song doesn't work anymore. <laughs> like... <laughs> Some John Boy's shit. Like, <laughs> we've added. What a- if we change the song? <laughs> <laughs> we've added a fourth strike to baseball to to regenerate interest. I mean, it's like if you like made an iconic uh, basketball thing and like the shot clock was in there, right? Like, <laughs> or like, what if Take Me Out to the Ball Game had like a line about the pitch clock? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh oh. About the sports betting app that you use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, all right, but that's it. Uh, that is it. Uh, remember that you can support us uh, in all the things we do, not just on King Things, but all the things we do as part of uh, Range Touch through patreon.com slash range touch. There are multiple tiers at which you can support us for various bits of cool bonus content, but as already mentioned, at $5 a month, you will get bonus episodes for just King Things that are about me and Cameron talking about Usually Stephen King film adaptations. Uh, Last month we did Storm of the Century. This month we will be doing the Desperation television film from uh, Mick Garris and a teleplay by Stephen King himself. Oh, golly, oh boy. 
uh, we'll have some interesting things to say about that, I'm sure. And then if you support us for more than that, you'll also get access to the Shell by Genre bonus episodes, uh, where Shell by Genre, in case you don't know, is where Cameron and I are joined by Austin Walker, and we read through genre literature. Very recently, we finished up our first season on uh, Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, and we have just started our next season in which we are reading through Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea Cycle. Uh, so that's very, very exciting. And I think the first couple episodes of that are probably out by the time that you're hearing this. Um, so we please, please uh, check us out, uh, support us. We do not do any other advertising and we only spread by word of mouth. So telling people about us or about our shows is extremely helpful in terms of growing our audience. You can also leave a public review for us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you leave a five star review that is also funny on Apple podcasts, there is a chance that Cameron will read it out loud on air like so. It's true. I got to navigate. I'm navigating. Um, this is from Immersion Blender. <laughs> Whenever I reach for something to fill my dishwashing time, I skip right over old Robbie Z and go straight for the good stuff. Uh, that's it. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we need some more funny reviews. Get in there. Get in there. Put some funny reviews in there, and I'll read them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'll, uh, give us your take on Chumbawamba. Uh, yeah, tell us what you think about Chumbawamba. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, leave five stars and then do it. Mm-hmm. Also, I didn't realize that uh, in last year, our our uh, podcast had been reviewed by Eddie Cochran. Oh, oh, Eddie Cochran himself? Yeah, who said it's a good podcast, which is that's very funny to me. <laughs> I hope that person's name is actually Eddie Cochran. Oh, I hope so, too. Uh, and you can leave those reviews now or remember patreon.com slash range touch. And you can also get all of our free content on our free uh, uh, RSS feeds like the one that this show is on, which will be updated next month with the next book that we will be talking about. The third one from 1999, we will be discussing Hearts in Atlantis. And then presumably the bonus episode for that will be the film adaptation of that book from like 2002 or something. All I remember is that it's got Anthony Hopkins in it. And I think Anton Yelchin. As the kid? Yeah, as the kid. I think that might have been his like debut. Really? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I got to look that up. I got to confirm. Yeah. Wow. Damn. A lot of good people in this. Mm-hmm. Got uh, David Morse in it. Oh. Coming back for another Stephen King. Cool. Alan Tudyk's in it for like five seconds. <laughs> That's fun. All right. Well, I've never actually Everybody seen like the film. Him. So that'll be interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. I never bothered to watch it. It is a little preview. It is one hundo... Um, uh god what's who's the rude man the rude man with his terrible emails a what the rude director with his awful emails. oh darabont okay darabont it is it's like a darabont cover album oh i can see that it's like all uh soft glow schmaltz i i for a second i thought a rude man with his terrible emails was your misremembrance of low men in yellow coats <laughs> it's like anthony hopkins getting down to that little boy in 1962 or whatever and being like listen bobby garfield you've got to watch out for the rude man and his terrible emails what's an email <laughs> 
Listen, I, I, oh, you haven't seen it. So you haven't heard Anthony Hopkins very specific, like weird performance in this. No, he's, he is doing the Anthony Hopkins. He is, he's constantly whispering like this mm-hmm. at little Bobby Garfield. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, we'll get to it. It's fine. No, I, like, I'm not mad about the movie, but it's not a movie that I've like yearned to see okay. uh, in a long time, but, but we will. He we'll will. We will. Okay. kill the momentum right there at the end we will do it next month like we do it every month and why do we do it cameron we do it for steve